Thank you, guys. That was good. Oh, you're, good. you're a good player. I'll tell you what. I played a harmonica. <laughs> well, if you have your Bibles today, we want to go back to Proverbs chapter 4. We have, when we got into Proverbs chapter 4, and as, as you, if you don't know, we're coming through the book of Proverbs. But when we got into Proverbs chapter 4, uh, we got into uh, a great a passage that deals with a, an issue that uh, we wanted to take a little time and, and talk about. You know, I, I've told you before that uh, I'm not just interested in, in, in you as members of my church here. Uh, I think it's important not only that you know uh, what you believe, and you find a lot of Christians today that, that, that know what they believe, but it goes farther than that, and I think that every Christian not only knows, needs to know what you believe, but I think it's vital that you understand why you believe what you believe. You know, you can go to church all your life and you hear the same old stuff over and over again, and after a while, you know, you, you just become a, um, someone who can recite it back. You, you, you heard it all, and, uh, but you don't really know why you believe what you believe. And if you're going to ever be effective for the Lord, if this church is ever going to be effective for the Lord, then you're going to have to not only know what you believe, but you're going to have to know why you believe it. Did you pay for those pens, Brian? Are you awful quick. I was going to get them later. <laughs> <laughs> Very little has escaped my attention. <clears throat> You got a tab back. Do you have a running tab back there or what? <laughs> anyway, now look at Proverbs chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. It says, Hear ye children the instructions of a father and attend to no understanding. For I give you good doctrine. Forsake ye not my law. For as my father's son, tender and the only beloved in the sight of my mother, he taught me also and said unto me, Let thine heart retain my words, keep my commandments, and live. Now, Father, help us today as we finish up this study. We've been in for a couple of weeks now, and uh, Lord, I think it's been a, a very vital study for the people in this church that, that want to really understand not just what they believe, but why they believe it. And help us today as we finish up today and we look through these things to uh, put it all together, and, uh, and we'll give you the honor and the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it, amen. Now, the last couple of weeks... I have been talking about the concept of good doctrine. And uh, over the last couple of weeks, you can better understand, I hope now, why we, we take the stand here at the church that we take. Uh, we live in a day and age where doctrine is gone. Pretty much you can believe whatever you want to believe. The Bible has no relevance anymore. Uh, if it feels good, do it. The situation ethics concept and and uh, we've talked about the fact that we stand on the Bible here. And when I, you know, when I say that, you know, everybody says, well, we stand on the Bible too. Well, they're standing on the Bible, and then they're standing on the Bible. And uh, there's a difference. But uh, we have an uncompromising stand on the Word of God uh, and the clear doctrine that it teaches as God's final authority to us. And so far, as we've come through this, and you should have this down now, uh, here's what we've learned. We've learned that the word doctrine means to teach, <clears throat> but not just teach any general thing. In the Bible context, the word doctrine means a specific teaching. 
that God is showing us what his opinion is on something. And there's hundreds and hundreds of doctrines in the Bible. I talked about the fact that, uh, uh, that we, uh, uh, when you get discipled, many of you uh, have been discipled. Some of you are being discipled right now. Some of you will be discipled in the near future. <clears throat> That's what discipleship does. It begins to lay down the fundamental teachings or doctrines that we stand on as Christians. Uh, and you start with that, and the rest of your life you'll, you'll add to that. There's a number of books uh, that we have in our bookstore back there that actually go through and lay out the different doctrines and uh, that you can record them in your Bible or learn them or study them. And, and it's so important that you understand that. Book of Proverbs says in Proverbs chapter 4 that out of, the, out of the heart of man come the issues of life. We all have things we have to deal with. Nobody here is going to have a problem-free life. Nobody here is going to have a life that you don't have some struggles in. You're going to have to make choices. You're going to have to make decisions. You're going to be faced with opportunities, or you're going to be faced with situations that you have to decide how you're going to deal with it. The answer to all of that is Bible doctrine. And that's why he says here in verse 4 of of chapter 4 that he taught me also and said, let thine heart retain my words and keep keep my commandments and live. The Bible says, thy word have I hidden mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Taking the Bible doctrine, the absolute teachings of the word of God and putting them into your heart and into your life. Then we also saw the real issue of the day. And uh, we saw that uh, the problem that we all face is that we stand on a book that is unchanging. We stand on a book that divides. And that's what doctrine does. Do- doctrine divides truth from error. It shows you what's right. And when you see what's right, then exposes what is wrong. And this is the fundamental thing that we are up against as Christians. We live in a world, we're faced with a Christianity in many, many cases that... Uh, that Uh, that wants to get everybody together. And we live in a world and stand on a book that wants to divide and wants to keep uh, us to the point where it shows us what is wrong. It changes, it shows us truth from error. We also saw from Matthew chapter 7 that doctrine is defined in the Bible as final authority. Jesus, when he preached, the Bible says they were astonished at his doctrine, uh, not as the scribes and the Pharisees. They didn't have any doctrine. They had teaching, but it was bad teaching. And where they're trying to get all the nation of Israel together, Christ is coming down, and he makes no bones about it. He says, I've not come to bring peace. I've come to bring division. And he goes through the list of things that he divides. We saw in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that the Bible, its number one function, the doctrine does for us, is shows us what's right. And when you know what's right, it helps you make the right choices. I showed you how the, the devil's plan is, 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 is to eliminate all doctrine. I showed you how the, all the new Bibles. In your King James Bible, the word doctrine in the New Testament is found 47 times. You go pick up any other Bible you want to find. I don't care what it is. 39 of those times it'll be gone. It will not be in that Bible or it'll be changed. And uh, because the devil's uh, job is to eliminate Uh, from Christianity, uh, all doctrine, so we can get everybody together. Last week, I took it to another level, and I showed you the four things that the devil started around 1900 that brought about the death of Bible doctrine and the end of the greatest church period in history. You ever have some time in your life, go back to the book of Revelation, study uh, two churches. 
One of them is found in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. The other one is found in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Uh, Revelation 3, 7 and Revelation 3, 20. And one of them is called the church of the open door. The other one is called the church of the closed door. What I'm trying to show you in this study is how that we went from the church of the open door. And he tells you in Revelation 3, 7, nobody is going to stand before you. I'll open the door and no man shut it. And in history, this is the greatest period of time in church history where the Holy Spirit of God literally went around the world and, and, and three-quarters of the world had come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Greatest period in church history. But the key was that you keep my word because the word of God is so crucial to us having good doctrine. And when you lose your Bible, you lose your doctrine. When you lose your doctrine, then anything goes when the whistle blows, so to speak, and uh, you, you wind up in a mess. You wind up in the church of the closed door. And that's where we're at today. We're in a situation where I showed you the four things. First was the getting rid of the Word of God, the removal of doctrine. I showed you the neo-Orthodox movement that started around the turn of the century, uh, 1900, the, uh, the, uh, the uniting the church with the world, the neo-evangelical crowd around the same time that takes the common Bible from the common man and puts it back into scholarship. And then I showed you the charismatic movement, total confusion and the, and the death knell to, to anything that has to do with Bible doctrine. I showed you the great parable out of Matthew chapter 13, how the, the devil sowed leaven in the lump. And that leaven is a picture of bad doctrine in the book of Galatians. That lump is the picture of Bible Christianity that the devil sowed into it and it destroyed it all. And that's why we get the little phrase, a little leaven leaveth the whole lump, because that's exactly what it did. I showed you your doctrinal roots. I showed you how that the reason why you have the truth today the reason why you have the truth today is because of one man, because of one man in our own history that we talked about last week that had the courage to take a stand when the whole Christian world was going into apostasy, when the whole Christian world was dumping the Word of God and bringing in evolution and bringing in all the heresy that we find today. We laid it out last week about churches embracing social drinking and gambling and all the things that they allow in today. This man took a stand. In fact, you want to have another study sometime, there's four men in the history of the New Testament, four men in the history of the New Testament that took a stand that got you what you have today. And there, there are, each one is a great study. We just talked about one last week. In all of this, we saw our doctrinal roots. We saw where we've come from, how God has used men to preserve the Word of God, that you and I today have the truth. I showed you how that my own roots go back through uh, these men, that the pastors and the old boys that taught me the Bible were from this guy out of Texas, J. Frank Norris, and uh, were out of his school and out of his church. And he put pastors all over this country uh, when he broke from uh, the apostasy of the Southern Baptist Convention. But then we saw two great doctrines go by the wayside today. The doctrine of sanctification, which is the doctrine of separation. You ask the average person today, what is the doctrine of sanctification? Say, person, they couldn't even tell you. They have no clue. And their lives show it. The doctrine of sanctification simply means that when you got saved, you were sanctified. Sanctified, what does that mean? It means that God sets you apart from the world. We're not supposed to be like the world. We're not supposed to talk like the world. We're not supposed to do the things that the world does. We're supposed to be a separate people, holy unto God. We're supposed to be a people who have separated ourselves from the things of this world. 
Yet we saw last week the church uh, and the world now has married together, so to speak, and the death of Bible doctrine uh, as its final result. After the last two weeks, this should be much clearer for you now why we have uh, the ridiculous issues that we find in Christianity today. Uh, that, that most people look at Christianity and they think they don't see it any different than, than from the world. It has lost its power. It has lost its influence. And uh, it's much a, much a joke today with most people. And uh, we, we saw all of that. Now, you hear me say this all the time, and I, and I mean this with all the sincerity that I have. You hear me talk about it all the time. This church is not for everybody. There are many churches that they want to keep everybody. Uh, I love people, and this church, you're obviously welcome to come here as much as you want, or you can stand it, however the word we want to put it. But the bottom line is, I understand that concept. I grew up in a concept where it was biblical down the line as close as it could be. And I realized that when you preach the truth of the Word of God, you're not going to make everybody happy because some people don't want the truth. I get that. I understand it. We think the Apostle Paul, you know, hung the moon when it comes to the Bible that he wrote and all the things that, uh, or the books in the Bible that he wrote and all the things that he did. But if you go back and do a detailed study of his life, you'll find there was a lot of people who did not like Paul. There was a lot of people that did not care for the truth that Paul was putting out. And he wasn't getting it 1,800 years like I am after the fact. He got it straight from God. And there were still people that didn't like what he said. It's just the way life is. Paul's ministry wasn't for everybody. He says, Demas has forsaken me. Paul's ministry wasn't for everybody. John Mark left him in the middle of a missionary trip and ran home to Mama. His ministry wasn't for everybody. His style of ministry wasn't for everybody. And I understand that. But you know what Paul did? Paul was always looking for a certain kind of guy. He was always looking for a certain kind of individual. And uh, when you study his life and look at his life, I can honestly tell you, I understand this ministry will not be for everybody. And it won't be simply because I'm looking for a certain kind of individual. I'm looking for a certain kind of person. I'm looking for that quality in somebody that they really want to understand and learn the Bible and do something with it. Let it do what the Bible says it does best. That is change our lives. And, uh, you know, we'll take our stand on the Bible. We'll take our stand on holy living and separation uh, from the world based on Bible doctrine and what it teaches. And I know we all are sinners and we all make mistakes. I'm certainly not talking about sinless perfection. I'm talking about a process in your life that you grow every day to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And as the song says, the farther you get away from the world, the closer you get to God. Now, some people like that. Some people don't like that. Some people only like doctrine when it fits what they want to do. And when they want to do something else that goes up against the clear teaching of the Bible, then they have a problem with it. See it all the time. But there are some people who will, to the best of their ability, they'll live their whole life based on a principled life. They'll take the principles of the Word of God. They'll see the value in it. They'll see what is done in somebody else's life. The greatest witness you have is not what you tell somebody God will do for them. The greatest witness we have is people looking at your life and seeing what God has done for you. But in most cases, God's not doing anything. You're going to find some people who, to the best of their ability, will live their whole lives based on a principled life, built around Bible doctrine. And it shows. It shows in their families. 
It shows in their kids. It shows in their marriage. It shows in their ministry. It shows in the blessings of God in their lives that they have. It shows in the fact that they're totally complete with who they are in Christ. And it shows that they're totally content with what they have with the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, you can't beat having the blessings of God that come from good doctrine in your life that God gives you and following it. It's just that simple. Now, today I want to show you, we talked about this last week. We've been talking about how the devil wants to get away from doctrine. We've been talking about how crazy churches have gotten and getting away from some of the clear teachings. And I showed you last week that there, that there, was, there was four uh, major aspects that I was going to talk about this week. Now, I'm not going to have time to go into all these in detail, but if you want to learn, this is where we bleed over into Thursday night. These are great Thursday night questions that I could take, and, uh, but I can't do it this morning because I've got to move through here. We've got to be out of here by 4 o'clock this afternoon, so you can't keep all of the time, do all that I want to do. But I want to give you an overview of them. I at least want you to see and understand it. Many of you who've been around for a while, you'll understand these. But we've got a lot of new people that have come into our church in the last year. And so I want you to see this, and we'll talk about this. But, uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll, we can pick it up on Thursday night, or you can come over to my house anytime if you want to go down, sit down and help me go through it with you. But uh, I want to I show you the four major key doctrines that, that, the, that they've departed from uh, that has destroyed uh, Christianity uh, in its basis. And in some cases, they added some things to it. But 120 years ago, these three things that I'm, I'm going to talk about four, three of them they, they, they changed, one of them they added. But these three things that they, they changed 120 years ago, they were the absolute fundamental basics that the Bible and Christianity and every true Bible believer was built on. And it's just that simple. Now, when you lose your Bible, we're going to start with that for just a second. When you lose your Bible, when your Bible ceases to be your final authority in your life, when you lose your Bible, when somebody takes that Bible from you and they start teaching you things that are not in the Bible, and you get so caught up in the music and all of the stuff that goes on and all the grandeur and all of that stuff that you just lose sight of what, if the guy is, what he's saying, is it really found in the Bible? Hey, there's a lot of things that sound good. But that doesn't mean they're in the Bible. The Bible says there is a way that seemeth right unto men, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And you're going to find a lot today that when, when that many people go to churches and uh, they, they, have, they have lost the, the aspect of their Bible being their final authority. But when you lose that Bible, most people don't know this, you lose seven things. You don't just lose your Bible. You lose seven things. And when you start to lose your, these seven things, or when you lose these seven things, I mean, uh, you're in trouble. And you want to do a little study. I don't have time to go through all of these. We've talked about it on Thursday night sometime, I'm sure, over the last couple of years. But the first thing you lose, obviously, is no doctrine. And you'll find what happens when you lose your doctrine in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Do a little study on your own. Got questions? Bring it Thursday night. The second thing that you lose in your life is no spiritual growth. You immediately stop growing spiritually because you have no good doctrine. That'll be 1 Thessalonians 2.13. You have no, the third thing is you now have no ability to love God biblically. Oh, you may love God, 
But there's a difference in loving God and, and loving biblically. There's some things that go along in the Bible, I'm sorry, with truly loving God the right way. I mean, most people love God like they love their dogs, or they love their cats, or they love this, or they love that. Most people fall in love with God. And you know what happens. You fall in love with God. You fall out of love with God. No, no. Real biblical love is not falling in love with God. Real biblical love is learning biblically how to love God. That's a process. You lose that. The fourth thing is you have no ability to worship God. That'll be John chapter 4, verse 29, biblically. The fifth thing is you'll have no prayer life biblically. That's John chapter 15, verse 7. I'm not saying you don't pray. But in all these things, there's, there, it's like the army. There's the right way, the wrong way, and the army way. Well, with God, there's the right way, the wrong way, and then there's the Bible way. And the Bible way is always the exact way. You lose your prayer life. John 15, 7, biblically. The sixth one is you have no power in preaching now. Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. So it all shifts like we've already talked about, to teaching. And the number seventh one, which is, now they're all bad, but this is the crowning uh, thing here, is you lose your millennial inheritance. And that's Joshua chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Now, when you lose these seven things, when you lose these seven things, you're done. Because this, these seven things will, will sweep out of your life anything that is relative to you having a relationship with God. You'll be just like the nation of Israel in 606 B.C. They had religious services. They had the Old Testament. They had a knowledge of God. They had all the stuff that God gave them in the law. But it was all an empty shell. There was no power. You know what the key word is with Israel around 606 B.C.? It's one name. Anybody know what the name is? And they're told to put this name over the threshold. What's the name? Anybody know? It's Ichabod. You know what Ichabod means? It means God has departed. And boy, I'll tell you what, you lose these seven things and you can put over your house number the name Ichabod because you're not going anywhere. And you'll still play at it. You'll still play the church, play all the games, but there'll be nothing there. Now, these four major doctrines that we're going to look at here uh, that brought in the leaven, that in time leavened the whole lump and put the church and Christians in the mess that it's in. Now, here's the first one. And like I said, I don't have time to get into the depth of all of these. I'm showing you historically, based on my church and me as a pastor wanting you to understand why we stand on the things we stand, where Christianity once was, where it's at now, and why we're here and not over there. We understand where our doctrinal roots. Now, number one, and this seems like a very insignificant thing. It really does, but it's major. The number one thing that happened was they started to get rid of the concept or the doctrine of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. I agree. Sounds like no big deal. Somebody look at that and they say, what's his problem? What's the deal? Well, let me tell you what my deal is. In Proverbs chapter 9, verse 1, probably a verse you haven't read for a while, it says that wisdom hath builded her house, she hath hewn out her seven pillars. Now, the Bible is likened to a rock. And that verse tells us that out of that rock, the Bible, God has hewn, chiseled out, cut out seven pillars. What he's saying is this, 
that the Bible you hold in your hand, the Bible you hold in your hand, when God put it out and God got it to us, he built that Bible on seven pillars. There are seven absolute major Bible doctrines that is built, your Bible sits on, that is built into your Bible, that when you lose them, you don't figure out your Bible. And number one, without a doubt, number one, without any question about it, is the concept of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Every Baptist church, 99% of them, without question, every evangelical and every neo-Orthodox, like we talked about last week, everybody teaches they're the same. Now, don't take my word for it. You all know Christians or pastors someplace out there. Just ask them. Get a little courage, be nice about it, and just say, you know what? I was studying the Bible the other day, and I come up with the two phrases in the New Testament, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. What are they? And if he tells you they're the same... I guarantee you he will because they're taught today starting all the way back when he destroyed that fundamental Bible doctrine, the number one pillar that all the Bible is built on. They're not the same. They're absolutely not the same. Now, I know it'd be a lot funner today if I just tickled your ear with Psalms 23 or something like that, and I understand that. But you know what? If you're going to stand and understand what you believe, if you're going to be strong and stand on the truth of, and know why you believe it, then doctrine has to be in the equation. It's just that simple. And this is a very long study. It's a great Thursday night study. But I just give you a brief overview of the thing. You know, I've told you this before. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32 tells you the Bible is built around three people groups. You want to fundamentally begin to learn the Bible? That's where you start. The Bible is written to the nation of Israel. The Bible is written to Gentiles. The Bible is written to the church. And your whole Bible, all 66 books, breaks down to those three. Those are the three main character groups in the Bible. Two of them, the nation of Israel and the church, are key players. In the Old Testament, you have the Gentiles. They'll either go to the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, they'll go to the church. But the two major characters in the Old Testament uh, are the nation of Israel and the body of Christ, the church. You get these two messed up as to the doctrine surrounding them, and you're going to teach bad doctrine. You're not going to have the truth of the Word of God. Now, very quickly, the kingdom of heaven is given to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. It's different than the kingdom of God. You read the book of Matthew, you'll find coming through Matthew 52 times where he references the kingdom of heaven in Matthew. You know what the book of Matthew is about? It's about the king coming to Israel and bringing in the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven will be the literal, visible kingdom in Jerusalem that the nation of Israel gets when Christ comes back. That's that one. The kingdom of God is the spiritual kingdom. It's defined for you in Romans 14, 17. Luke chapter 17, verse 21. It's the spiritual kingdom when you get born again. Everybody here that got saved at some point in your life, when you got saved, you were spiritually born into this spiritual kingdom. Romans 14, 7 says it's peace and righteousness in the Holy Ghost. The Bible says that the kingdom of God is inside you. It's not literal. It's spiritual. So you have to understand, and now you begin to see how the Bible is built around that. If the Bible is built around two people groups, and the two kingdoms represent the two people groups, then you have the nation of Israel over here with the Jew, literal, and then you have the kingdom of God over here with the church, which is spiritual. Now, 
I'm no Bible theologian, but if I was reading down through the Bible and I found that the Matthew, which is the book of the King of the Jews, talks about the King of the Heaven 52 times, and then I read Paul's writings in his books and all the things that Paul writes. He writes to seven churches. He writes to three Christians. And not in one time in anything that he writes does he ever mention. And he's writing to the church. His books are doctrine to the church. Not one time, not one time in any of his writings does he ever mention the kingdom of God? Now, you'd think somebody would catch that. You'd think that somebody would read a Jewish book about the nation of Israel, the king of the Jews, find it 52 times, and then read the book that Paul writes about the church and never finding it one time? I would think you would catch that. I think you would catch that. Now, I list this one number one for one reason. If you don't get this one right, you're absolutely done when it comes to learning and understanding of the teaching of the Bible. Now, there's a lot of things that we could do with this, and we don't have time this morning. I would be glad to do it some Thursday night or come over to my house and do it. But the bottom line is this. Uh, it, they're not the same. Back in our bookstore back there, we have a book called The Sure Word of Prophecy. I checked it this morning. There's only three or four copies back there, but we can order some more if you want one. In my humble opinion, the greatest book ever been written outside the Word of God. It is the book it used to be called the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. They changed the name a while back, 30 years ago. But I, I read it when I was just starting in the Bible. I've got to be honest with you. I had to read it because I was pretty stupid. I had to read it four or five times before it made sense. But brother, was I grew in the Lord and I saw that and that thing brought it all together. In my mind, it's the greatest book ever written outside the word of God. And uh, that's why I have that bookstore back there. There's books you can trust because everybody needs to build a library of material that's based on sound doctrine. It's just that simple. So that's your first one. Second one followed right on the heels of the first one. Then the second one was losing sight of the dispensations in the Bible. Now I know this is over some of your head, but I'm going to bring it down to where you can grasp it, because that's what I have to do for me. And uh, so don't get worried about some of these big terms. I'm going to explain it to you, because you need to learn them. Now, when you lose your first pillar, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, that the Bible is built upon, that it all goes downhill from there. Dispensations in the Bible are completely ignored today. Back in our bookstore back there, you can see it, that big white book back there. It's called Dispensational Truth by Clarence Larkin. You know when that was written? That was written in 1900. There has never been before that, nor will there ever be a book again that lays out the dispensations of the Bible better than Clarence Larkin did in 1900. You know why? Because in 1900, everybody believed it. Nobody believes it today. See how progressive we become? When you lose Bible and you lose truth, then you start to go float all over the page. And now in 1900, that was a standard teaching for every Baptist church in this country. Everybody believed it. Larkin believed it. C.I. Schofield believed it. Darby believed it. Uh, Robert Dick Wilson believed it. Dwight Pentecost believed it. Vance Havner believed it. Everybody believed it. Today, nobody believes it. Yet that book stands as a testament. You couldn't buy, you go into your average Christian junk shop where they got all the Christian paraphernalia. 
You couldn't find that book on the shelf anywhere in this country. You know why? Because it's Bible doctrine. You know why it doesn't sell? Nobody wants Bible doctrine today. Some of you got wide margin Bibles. You try to go to a Christian bookstore and buy a wide margin Bible. They'll look at you like you're a three-headed monster. You can't get him anywhere. The great companies that used to make them don't make them anymore. If they do, they're very hard to find. You know why? Because nobody wants them anymore. We have to go through a local church, which we should, who keeps that Bible alive because they believe what we believe. And they print that Bible themselves to keep it in production called a wide margin study Bible because I've told you many, many times, the greatest study Bible you ever have is your own with your own notes in it. You know why nobody wants a wide margin Bible except you weird people? Because nobody studies the Bible anymore. Why can you when you can get this guy's study Bible or this guy's study Bible or get the one with the pictures in it? Those are the ones I always like. Uh, you, why, why would you put your own notes in it now when you can just, you can get a Bible that somebody else will tell you what it means? Nobody studies, nobody labors in the Word of God anymore. You guys do. I remember one time when somebody was in the hospital. It was a Jamie or Kelly that talked to the Catholic priest that she had her Bible there. Kelly, was it you? Who was in the hospital? Oh, mom was in the hospital. Oh, it was, oh, okay. Mom was in the hospital. That's right. And you had brought your Bible, wide margin Bible. And she's sitting there studying it. And the chaplain comes in. Nice guy. Very nice guy. He could not believe. He was, he was taken by her wide margin Bible. He could not believe that anybody would get a wide margin Bible and want to write notes in it. He was taken back. Not, nicest guy on the planet. But he was taken back to the fact that anybody would get a Bible with big columns around it that you could actually put notes in it. You know why? Because nobody he's associated with ever studies the Bible. That's why. And it's incredible. Nobody today, nobody studies the Word of God anymore. Nobody labors over it. Nobody prays, prays over it. And when you come to the place, when you find a dispensation, a dispensation in the Bible is always taught as a period of time. That's true. But it's more than that. In the Bible, it's not just a period of time. In the Bible, a dispensation is a period of time when God changes the way he deals with man. You want to remember that. Your greatest example of that would be the Old Testament from the New Testament. God put a, had him under the law in the Old Testament, then did away with the law in the New Testament. That's your first, easiest, understandable dispensation. But a dispensation in the Bible will be not just a period of time, but when God, in a period of time, changes the direction by which he's doing what he's dealing with man. And how uh, the Bible it rightly divides itself around dispensationalism. I, I, I'm telling you, uh, please, take my word for it. You couldn't find five preachers in this city who understand dispensationalists or could lay them out for you. There's 11 dispensations in the Bible. Some guys count them, nine, ten. Uh, it, 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 they got all the material in the right place. They just may cut it up a little differently. But, but there's 11 fundamental uh, uh, dispensations in the Bible. And, uh, you know, they'll, they'll tell you that uh, there's no such thing as dispensations. They'll tell you that there's this, there's that, you know, and, and God's dealing with the same way all the way down through the Bible. That's called covenant theology. No, no, there's 11 dispensations. Four times in the Bible... 
God uses the word dispensation. But who cares when you don't have the Bible? See, who cares? You find in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 17. You find Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. That one's a dispensation of the fullness of times. 1 Corinthians 9, 17, the dispensation of the gospel committed to Paul. Ephesians 3, 2 is the dispensation of the grace of God. And Colossians chapter 1, verse 25 is the dispensation of God. Four different times that you use it. Now, why somebody would say that there are no such thing as dispensation when God puts it four times in his Bible? I don't understand people sometimes. Why would you, if you had a brain tumor, would you go to a brain surgeon that never operated on a brain before? Then when you go in there and he starts looking at, he says, well, we're going to have to take that tumor out. Let's look at the x-rays. And he puts an x-ray up of your lungs. Would you get a little concerned? Nobody on this planet would go get your brain operated on by somebody who doesn't understand brain surgery. Then why in the world would you spend your life in a spiritual place where the guy teaching it doesn't know anything about the Bible? To me, it's the same thing. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. Now, there's 11 dispensations in the Bible. And they rightly divide. Remember that verse? They rightly divide the Bible up for you. 11 different times when God changes the way he does things with man. We don't have time to go through them all today. But I will tell you this. Most of you want to learn the Bible. I'm toying with the idea sometime in March of taking a whole month uh, on Bible study night and bringing you through God's systematic theology of how to lay the Bible out. And uh, we need to do it for all the new people. It's all a great refresher. Uh, There's always things that you learned that you didn't know last time. But there's a systematic theology coming through the Bible, a basic plan to learn the Bible. Now, the first thing, if I were you, here's what I would do. I'd get the seven pillars in Proverbs 9 that the Bible's built on. I'd identify each one of those seven pillars, and I'd understand each one of them, how they relate to the Bible. Because you're going to find in a broad sense, the Bible breaks itself down around those seven pillars. Those seven pillars will lead you, as you study it, and break down around the 11 dispensations. Now, at this particular point, once you understand it, now the Jew, the Gentile, and the church get in the right context. They'll break down for you the Bible around the three major events in the Bible, creation, first coming of Christ, and the second coming of Christ. Now, fundamentally, very simplistically, that's how you do it. You start with the fundamental, systematic way the Bible lays itself out. Those 11 dispensations are the natural outline of the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. The whole Bible weaves its way around those 11 dispensations. When you understand that, and you get into the Bible and you're reading a book, now you have a context because you understand where to put it in. Now you're on your way. Fundamentally, this is the reason why I said a guy guy like A.J. over here and some of the other kids in our church, I'd put them up against any pastor in this city when it comes to knowing the Bible. You know why? Because they've been raised and trained on Bible doctrine. They, you should have heard him last night laying that thing out. I did a thing on the gospel and the stars and the witness of the stars. What? Incredible. Now the third one. Now this one is it's not a changing of the doctrine. This one is a reinstatement of a heresy that started around 1500. And I'll explain this one to you. Uh, this one is the aspect of, of the uh, heresy of, of Calvinism. 
commonly called predestination. Now, the third doctrinal heresy that the church and the pastors and Christians embrace is the regurgitation of this heresy that started uh, called Calvinism that is actually today sweeping across Baptist churches. It's incredible. Some of the great preachers that you listen to on the radio, like John MacArthur, who was a good Bible teacher, many of them now have went the way of Calvinism. They've changed the name now, repackaged it, and put it out today because Calvinism has such a bad connotation with people. Everybody knew it was a heresy. So now they brought it up and repackaged it, and now they call it Reformation Theology. So they changed the name a little bit. They know people are stupid that they'll buy it without ever looking at it. Now, I, I've never, I've got to be honest with you, and I don't mean this to be cruel. <clears throat> I'm really not. If you know me, <clears throat> you know I'm the nicest guy in the world. <clears throat> but I, and there are times I just, I, 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 get, I get baffled by things. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> I'm, not talk, I'm not somebody who doesn't know what he's talking about. <clears throat> I've been in this business 40 years. I've talked to more Calvinists than I can ever remember. I have three, no, four Calvinist friends right now in my life that are good friends of mine. They're, they're heretics, but they're good friends of mine. <clears throat> and I would, and I've told this, I've told them, so what I'm saying right now, I've told them face to face. And they just laugh about it, and it's okay. I tell them, to be a Calvinist, you have to be an imbecile. I, I don't know what else to say. You have to be without a spiritual IQ that is below subplant life. I, I don't understand how anybody with any common sense could be and embrace this heresy called Calvinism. Now, I've never met a Calvinist, and I'll tell you why they do. I've never met a Calvinist uh, that ever understood his Bible. I got three or four of them who follow our website. They'll be on, they'll hear this tomorrow probably, or whenever Jenny gets it on. And I'll get a call from them this week. And they call me all the time. And they'll call me up and they'll be asking me, a couple of them teach Bible studies. And they get asked questions they don't understand, deep doctrinal questions. So they'll call me on the phone. And they'll say, hey, you know, I had this question last week. Uh, you know, uh, how would you handle this? Or what does the Bible say about it? And I'm cool with it. I, I mean, I, I answer their questions. I mean, they're teaching best they can. I, I, I don't, you know. But I ask them one time. Because they go off and on and on about this thing when I did talk to them about how that, you know, Calvinism is the deepest thing. And you've got to understand the great doctrinal truths of, of predestination to go back before the foundation of the world. And, da, 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 and they got it down. They got all the truth. So I asked them one time. How is it that a guy that has all the truth and is in deep in all the eternal destiny that you have in predestination doesn't know the basic simple things about doctrine in the Bible? How come you've got to call a Baptist when you're a Calvinist to get your answer if you've got all this stuff down? Yeah, it's just that quiet, too, on the phone. I don't care. Now, let me explain to you what Calvinism is. Give you a quick overview. Nothing will kill your zeal as a Christian faster than predestination or Calvinism, Reformation theology. Now, here's the concept of Calvinism in a nutshell, and I use that because he was a nut for sure. <laughs> here's Calvinism. Way back when, once upon a time, before Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, God looked down through eternity, and God picked some people to go to heaven and some people to go to hell. Now, if you're one of the ones that he picked to go to heaven, you're in. If you're one of the ones he picked to go to hell, you're out. Now, there's nothing he can do to keep from going to heaven. He was predestined before the foundation of the world to be one of the chosen ones. So he's in. There's nothing she can do to get saved. 
She can come to church all her life. She can get on her knees and cry and ask God to save her a thousand times, but because she was not chosen, she can never be saved. That's Calvinism in a nutshell. I, 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 I've never been to one of their services. I don't know what they must sing. A couple of weeks ago, you said, when you were leading it, you sang, Jesus loved me. I, I, I love that song. Jesus loved me, you know, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. They must sing, Jesus loves me, sorry about you. <laughs> You're not one of the chosen few. I don't know what they sing. I don't get it. But that is absolutely ludicrous. The Bible teaches over and over and over again that God died for everybody. Now, you want to go one step further what they teach? Now, you'll have to pin them down on this one because they don't want to make this public. If you believe in Calvinism, predestination, if you believe that God actually chose some people to go to heaven and some people go to hell, you see, they don't think they have no Bible doctrine because we know that there's doctrines that go along with salvation. Twelve individual ones we, we know. No Calvinist ever understood those. But I'll tell you another doctrine. It's the doctrine of Romans chapter 7. What about when a baby dies? Now, we teach, on, based on Bible doctrine, that a baby is under grace, that no sin is imputed to him because he has no knowledge of sin. So if you have a baby and he lives to be two or three years old and he dies, or <clears throat> three or four, we believe there's an age where he has to be saved, but <clears throat> certainly a baby two or three, four years old, <clears throat> he dies, <clears throat> we know he goes to heaven. I don't know how many funerals I've done where uh, the mom and dad have rested in the fact that even though they lost their baby at two or three or four years old, they know that baby is in heaven based on the Bible doctrine. You know what a Calvinist will tell you at the graveside? Well, maybe your kid went or maybe he didn't. Because they got to take predestination all the way to the down the line. You can't just say, well, you weren't predestined and you're under God's grace and then you hit the age of accountability and then predestination kicked in. Uh-uh. It doesn't work that way. They have to take it all the way down. Now, when that baby's born, you got two babies here, one's three, one's six months, one's eight months, and one of them may be predestined to go to heaven, one of them may be not predestined to go to heaven. When that baby dies, it be... Could you imagine telling a grieving mother, well, uh, we can't say for sure he's in heaven. That little baby might be in hell. Woo! That's heresy, man. Absolute heresy. Aren't you glad in that case for Bible doctrine? Well, the front row is anyhow. Aren't you glad that Bible doctrine is true? Amen. I'm telling you, it's crazy stuff. Now, let me talk to you about this thing here. You got to understand this. Now, this heresy starts in 1500 with John Calvin. Who was John Calvin? John Calvin was one of the reformers in the Reformation. John Calvin starts the Presbyterian Church. John Calvin is the guy who first came up with the concept of predestination. Now, they want to get around that today, <clears throat> and so they put John Calvin out of it, <clears throat> and they call it Reformation theology. Either way, it's still stupid. The Reformation took place in 1500. You know the problem they got? They got a teaching that didn't show up for 500 years after the death of Christ. There's no, there's no Calvinism taught in the book of Acts. You don't find anybody on the planet Earth who believes in Calvinism and the Bible-believing churches till John Calvin in 1500, 15, 500 years after Christ, is, after Christ is, uh, has been here. It starts with him. That's why they call it, hello, Calvinism. You know why it's called Christianity? Take a guess. Anybody. Christ. You're a Christian. Got the word Christ in it. You know why Christianity is called Christianity? Because it starts with Christ. 
You know why Calvinism is called Calvinism? Just take a wild shot. It starts with Calvin. Crazy stuff, man, crazy. Now let me tell you, give you a little bio on little Johnny boy here. Once upon a time, there was a man named John Calvin. Calvin got his theology from his favorite theologian who was Augustine of Hippo, a Roman Catholic theologian who lived between 354 and 430 A.D. Augustine was a Roman Catholic. He subscribed to Jerome's Latin Vulgate, the corrupt New Testament that came up from Constantine uh, about uh, 100 years before, and he writes a book. The book that he writes is called City of Our God. And in that book, you find the first roots of what Calvin would let her take and bring into Protestantism. Because Augustine writes, when he writes his book, here's his concept of predestination. City of our God. Now, when you and I would think of city of our God, we would think of where? Jerusalem. Not so with Augustine. For Augustine, Roman Catholic, the city of God was Rome. And in his book, City of Our God, he now proclaims that God has predestined Rome to take the place of the nation of Israel and the Jews. That was the concept of the book. He taught that, he taught that, that uh, Rome had now taken over all of Jerusalem and that the Roman Catholic Church was now the only true church, that God was finished with the Jews and God predestined Rome and the Roman Catholicism to take over the world. That was his preface of his book. Don't take my word for it. Read the book. Now, how would you like to abase your theology of your church as a Calvinist on a guy who believed in baby sprinkling, baptism regeneration, that God was done with the nation of Israel, and, it is, and that Rome was predestined by God, who would kill Bible-believing Christians at a drop of a hat all down through the Dark Ages, had their own Bible, and believed in no literal reverend of the second and first coming of Christ. But Calvin did. In 1536, Calvin wrote his book based on uh, his love for Augustine. It was called The Instructions of the Christian Religion. This is the first time in 1536 ever entered into Christianity where the concept of God predestinating, looking down through history, bringing somebody, choosing you and not you, comes in. And it comes in with John Calvin. This is where you find his famous phrase that he hears all the time, and the, the Calvinists use it all the time, the sovereignty of God. You know, you don't find the phrase the sovereignty of God one time in the Bible anywhere because it's not biblical. It's not a biblical term in the sense that Calvin used it. Now, here's what Calvin believed. And if Calvin believed what he wrote, I'm not judging the man. I'm just going by what he wrote. You can read any one of my books back there, which all have sold well under a million copies. You could, you could get one of those books back there, and you could read them. And when you're done, you'd know what Bob Alexander believes about this. So I'm basing off what he wrote. I figure when he wrote this, this is what he believed about what he believed. He believed in baptism regeneration for salvation. He thought baptism, water baptism, and a new birth was a mixture. He believed in baby sprinkling. He believed that Christ was a begotten God, not the eternal Son of God. He also killed Bible believers. And he also taught, as I told you a little earlier, that some babies are going to die and go to hell. Now today, all of the great one-time leaders of Christianity are becoming Calvinists. And you're going to run into it all the time. Many Baptist churches have went that way. 
under the concept of Reformation theology. Both Bible colleges are filled with Calvinistic teachers. Dallas Theological Seminary being the main boat today is, 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 is filled with them. Uh, they, 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 they buy into a heresy that, that started 500 years after Christ uh, was alive by an unsaved Roman Catholic who wrote what he wrote and then Calvin takes it and then finishes it off and brings it into Protestantism. They have lost their doctrinal roots. They do not understand the true biblical line that brought the salvation that you and I enjoy and have so freely to us. And you know, Calvin basically wanted to set himself up as the Pope of Protestantism. So he starts the Presbyterian Church, and every Presbyterian Church on this planet from that point to today will be a Calvinist church. But they're the ones who also bring in the lesbians and the homosexuals to be pastors and teachers and, and think it's a, a lifestyle. They're progressive, like we talked about last week. See, that's how it goes. Now, the fourth one. I never thought that I'd ever be preaching on what I'm going to preach on this morning from Baptist churches. But this is what happens when you lose your doctrine. You get four or five generations down the line and uh, it all goes to pieces, man. All goes to pieces. And when you see the losing the aspect of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, then you lose the aspect of the 11 dispensations. You can't divide your Bible upright anymore. Calvinism comes in and takes completely out of everything that any doctrine in it. There is absolutely no doctrine in it. That's all fluff. It's all about salvation, the eternal decrees of God of who chose and who didn't. Now we've come to the place where the Baptist churches are coming to the point where they're kicking out the rapture and telling you that the church is not going to go in any rapture because there is no rapture and the church is going through the tribulation period. Obviously, the God has thought that up in Mary several times. He thinks he's in the tribulation period. You see, the farther we get from the Bible, the more heresy comes in. A little leaven leaven the whole lump. Now, in Baptist evangelical circles, we have forsaken the greatest doctrine for the church outside of salvation, and that is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ for his people, commonly known as the rapture. Now, for 1,900 years, the true Bible believers had held the doctrine of the rapture of the church, Christ coming for his bride. The doctrinal passing of, uh, on it, the doctrinal passages on it are 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 58, the whole chapter really, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18. Scores of places in the Bible will show you the rapture of the church, directly and indirectly. Now, this heresy is simply based on a complete and total breakdown of truth. This is what happens after four or five generations of just losing any similarity of truth in the Bible. This is what happens when nobody defines everything from the Bible anymore. This is what happens when somebody writes books and they come up with a new idea, and instead of reading your Bible, you read their book, and you take the book over what the Bible says. That's exactly what happens today. And I read a lot of books. But every book I read, I run through this book. This is my final authority, see? Yeah, a little guy here last year, year before last, that showed up in church when, he, when the ladies brought him. Uh, he's a nice kid. Came to Bible study a couple of times, came to church. For, well, he actually came for probably two or three months. I think he played volleyball. And he's a nice kid. 
And, uh, you know, he's uh, coming to church and uh, coming to Bible study, and he asked a few little questions, you know. And so then he makes an appointment to come over and see me, which is great. So he comes over one of the nights, and, uh, and, and he, he brings me a book that his, his pastor wrote. And it's a book on why the church is, why there is no rapture and why the church is going through the tribulation period. And, uh, you know, I, 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 it took me about 10 seconds to look at the book, and, I, and it was an absolute joke. Uh, it was a book that it, completely what I'm talking about. It's a thing where it, it's a it's a thing where it the guy had no idea how to rightly divide the word of truth. It was totally heresy based on his inability to be able to lay out the Bible. And uh, you know he said to me, he says, "Well, you believe the you believe the rapture uh, of the church?" And I said, "Yes, I do." And I'm kind. Hey, I'm a nice guy. I mean, you come over and want to have a nice talk about it. I'm good. You know what? No big deal. He said, well, he said, he said to me, he said, well, you believe in the rapture of the church? And I said, yes, I do. He says, well, he says, uh, you're wrong. I said, okay. He says, uh, and I can prove you're wrong. I said, okay. I've I'm, I'm been wrong many, many times. Just ask my wife. What, 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 what do you want? And he said, well, I can prove that there's no rapture in the church and your teaching on it is wrong. I said, okay. What? He says, well, I, I, I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll, I'll settle it real quick. I said, okay. He says, show me the word rapture in the Bible. He's got me. <laughs> now what do I do? I said, whoa, that's pretty good. I said, let me ask you a question. You believe the Bible is the Word of God? Absolutely. I said, now let me ask you, you believe that the Bible is the absolute Word of God, the Bible? He says, yeah, absolutely. I says, fine. Show me the word Bible in the Bible. I mean, you won't play with me with the Bible. You're picking the wrong guy to do it with. I mean, you want to come to me because the word's not in there? Uh, it, that means it can't be true? Well, the word Bible's not in there either, and you just told me you believe the Bible. So why can you believe the Bible when the word Bible's not in there, but I can't believe the rapture if the word rapture's not in there? That poor little deluded kid didn't even know where the word rapture came from. I know where it came from. I understand where it came from. I mean... What does rapture mean? The word. It's an expression of, of desire of love. It's the existence or expression of joy and pleasure. Didn't you ever read so or a Song of Sodom in chapter 2? Did you ever read the whole Song of Sodom in the first three chapters? If you don't see the expression of love. But you see, that's the problem. When you lose the Bible and you lose the seven things about the Bible, then you lose your ability to love God from a biblical standpoint. Then you can't understand when you read something like that why the rapture word got put in there by the old Christians down through the history of the church. They gave it that designation because of the fact that it was their expression of the rapture of the love, of the deep sentiment and love that they had for the day God came to them. You don't get it? I'll help you get it. Give me that hymnal right there. You look all bored. Time to sing. <laughs> Everybody get a hymnal. Everybody. 255. Oh, yeah. This guy didn't know anything about the rapture. It's because he was involved in a rupture. Here we go. 255. Everybody got it? Yep. Blessed assurance. Follow it. We're going to sing it. Everybody. Laugh. It ain't loud enough. I'm going to start. Stop this big study. Here we go. I'll lead you. Ready? 
verse stanza. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born in his spirit, washed in his blood. Here we go. This is my story. This is my song. My Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. All right, second stanza. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of what? What? Visions of what? Visions of what? One more time with feeling. Visions of what? Wow, somebody got it right. You got more doctrine in that hymn than he had in his book. You know who wrote that song? Fanny Crosby, 1820. A blind woman could see more than a man with his eyes. Visions of rapture, 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 rapture. Ain't in the Bible. <laughs> oh, boy. Now, let me help you with this. Let me show you how doctrinally you know You, if you're saved here today, are not going through the tribulation period. From the Bible doctrine, okay? The first thing we'll look at is the wrath of God. Because when you go through the tribulation period, in the Bible, the the Bible, you know what I'm talking about. The Bible, the Bible. Revelation chapter 6, 17, Revelation 15, 1, Revelation 16, 1, Revelation 14, 19, Revelation 14, 10. Isaiah 57, 17, Isaiah 64, 7, Isaiah 54, 18. Omaha! Omaha! Oh, I got caught up in it. (laughs) Isaiah 54, 18, Psalms 102, 1 through 10. All clearly defined. The wrath of God in the tribulation period is to Israel. That's defined for you in those places. That's good doctrine. That's not this guy's opinion, my opinion, your opinion. The Bible defines the wrath of God in the tribulation period as God pouring out his wrath on the nation of Israel. All right? Let's see where you and I fit into it. You want some good doctrine? I'll give you some good doctrine. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. You know what it says? Right in the context of the tribulation period, it tells you that the church, the body of Christ, is not appointed under wrath. You're not going through that wrath. Now, let me get real simple, and I'm going to do a little preaching here, because I haven't yet, but I'm feeling it coming on, feeling it coming on. Now, let me tell you why you're not going to go through the tribulation and suffer the wrath that God's going to pour out. Do you know why? I'll tell you why. Because on the cross of Calvary, God took your wrath. That's why. There's no wrath to put on you. On the cross of Christ, when he died on that cross, the Bible says in Romans 5, 9, that that I was saved from the wrath of God through Christ. So I'm not appointed under wrath. 
Now, to say that the church will experience God's wrath is a complete collapse of doctrine and understanding of the crucifixion of Christ. If that's where they're all at today, they don't follow the Bible anymore. You will not experience the wrath of God if you're saved because God, from the sixth to the ninth hour, put the wrath of God on his son for me and you. He paid it. Now, that's how it works. Now, today, you've got a great illustration why we here at Old Paz use the Bible. But we believe the Bible. We don't just carry it around as an ornament of conversation on the coffee table. We believe that every decision we make in life has to come from that book. We believe what Proverbs says in 4.1, that God has given us good doctrine. We believe that doctrine is profitable, and it's profitable for, for to show us what's right, correction. We believe that profitable uh, doctrine is profitable, that it helps you rightly divide the word of truth. It shows you what's right, shows you what's wrong. God always will give you his opinion exactly, wholly, exactly what it should be. It's your job and my job, certainly my job as the pastor of this church, to make sure that everything comes out of my mouth comes out of this book. Everything that I give you is based on the good doctrine of this Bible. Doctrine is teaching. Not just teaching about anything. Teaching the specific truth of any particular subject as God lays it out in his word. That's what it is. It's just that simple. And we've lost that today. Now these are the four great doctrines that basically went first. And once they went, everything started to go. And now you're seeing it where all of the things that 40 years ago we in churches and pastors preached against are now welcome into the church as just part of the progressiveness. Progressiveness, my eye. When a pastor begins to move from that Bible and leave the great truths that were taught for the last 1,800 years by Bible-believing Christians, it opens the door, or should I say closes the door, for the next four or five generations to, to be able to uh, discern uh, heresy or get into deeper heresy and deeper apostasy. The greatest, the great principle of, of degenerational generations takes place. Every generation gets worse than the last. You see it in families. You get a nominal Christian family here that, that really don't get into the Word of God and don't do what they want to do. I see it all the time. They don't really, they may come to church all the time, but there's no real Bible in their home. They'll raise their kids, and then the kids grow up less involved than the parents do. And where the kids, where the mom and dad, you know, uh, maybe uh, did a few things, the kids will do worse things. And their kids will grow up, and maybe those kids will get saved, but by the time you see it down the line someplace else, two or three generations, Nobody's going to church anymore. Nobody's getting saved. The whole thing's falling apart. You know why? Because somebody simply didn't hold the line with the truth of the Word of God. Now, in a family, that father is your responsibility. In this church, it's mine. And the guy that taught me, it was his. And the guy that taught him, it was his. And down through history, there's an unbroken chain of men and women who will not deviate from the truth of that book that will stand on it, that understand what doctrine is, and will not compromise their stand on what the Word of God says. Your family's at stake. Your sons and your daughters are at stake. (laughs) 
Now, I've given you the complete study on it. A lot of things here we can clean up on Bible study because obviously I didn't have the time to go through it the way I wanted to. But I want to leave you with four warnings in the Bible. I want to leave you with four warnings in the Bible. Four warnings in the Bible are not losing what the Bible teaches that God has for you and the consequences when you do. Each one of these will not only affect you in your own life today, big time, but they will, they will deal with you at the judgment seat of Christ. The first one's in Proverbs chapter, uh, Proverbs chapter 5, verses 7 and 9. It says, Hear me now, therefore, O ye children, and depart not from the words of my mouth. Remove thy way far from her, and come not nigh to the door of her house. Here it comes. Lest thou give thine honor unto others, and thy years unto the cruel. The first warning is that you're going to give your honor at the judgment seat of Christ to somebody else. Because you didn't stay with the book. You didn't stay true to the word of God that God gave you. I'll show you the second one. Second one's in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world, to try them which dwell upon the earth. Here it comes. Behold, I come quickly. Here it comes. Hold fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Somebody going to take your crown. <clears throat> a warning that somebody didn't get your crown. Now, there's five crowns listed in the Bible. We're going to get into them in a couple of weeks when we get into Proverbs chapter 4. There's crowns in that Bible that you get for certain things that you do. And here he's giving you a warning that no man takes those crowns. You get out of the book and somebody takes good doctrine from you and you get messed up in left field, somebody's going to take your crowns. Third one, 2 Timothy 2.5. And if a man also strive for mastery, yet he is not crowned. There's your crowns. Why is he not crowned? Except he strive lawfully. Now there's the warning of getting out of the Word of God and not doing it by the book. That's a great verse that shows you that if you're going to serve God or you're going to do anything for God, you do it His way, not yours. I, as a pastor, don't have the right to make up my own doctrine and do what I want to do if it's not conducive to the Word of God. Neither do you. And when you run lawfully, you run your life, Christian life, by the book. It becomes your standard you go by. It becomes your absolute final authority. It becomes the handbook of who you marry. It becomes the handbook of how you raise your kids. It becomes the handbook of how you run your life. It becomes the handbook of everything you do in your life. And you run lawfully. And you get crowned. Fourth one. Revelation 16, 15. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. Now the fourth warning is a warning that somebody, you're going to lose your garments. And there's no question about walking naked according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and Romans chapter 14 verse 10. That's the judgment seat of Christ. So those four warnings are the warnings in the Bible that you stay with Bible doctrine. Because when you lose your Bible, you lose seven things. When you lose those seven things, you're going to automatically lose these four things. And these four things are all that really matter right here. These are the things. These things will keep your family. It'll keep your marriage. It'll keep your home. It'll keep your sanity. It'll get you through the Obamacare and everybody else's care and the ones that don't care. It'll get you through everything in life. The book. That's why we stand on it. That's why I'll preach it. That's why I won't compromise my stand on it. And that's why I'm passionate about it. 
Next week, we'll be back right where we need to be, where we left off, and pick it up in chapter 4. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Now, let me ask you a question. 